Hi, I'm John Papola, and you're listening to the Emergent Order Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I have a great conversation with Stephen Horwitz. Steve is a professor of economics at Ball State University and a longtime classical liberal who I've personally learned a lot from over the years and brings a really interesting and unique perspective to issues around social change and how to think about them from a classical liberal perspective. He's recently published a piece over at libertarianism.org titled Libertarians Who Dismiss Social Justice Are Mistaken. And it's an important and provocative piece for people who see themselves as libertarian or classical liberal asking to take a second look at this important subject, especially in this era of public protest over the death of George Floyd and the structures and institutions in American society that really deserve a second look and a deeper look. And so I share this conversation with you in the hope of encouraging an open, loving discourse so that we can build a better country and a better world. So, Steve, you are the second video interview for our humble little podcast, the first being Brian Kaplan. But in a very real sense, um, you should have been the first because <laughs> outside of Russ, who, who of course I, I had be my first guest when we started doing the podcast yeah. a year ago, you were maybe the only other person to see the original lyrics yeah. to Fear the Boom and Bust, which was the, the, the project that started, started yeah. it all for me and, and for our company and for all the work we do. Yeah. So you've got a, you've always got a very special place in my heart, Steve. Well, thanks, John. I love telling the story. I mean, because I didn't know who you were, right? And and I'm we, well, no one. There was no reason right. to know right. me, I was, right? You know, um, we're, well, and, and I was giving this talk at Fee, and this guy comes up to me with this crazy hair, and 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 says uh, says says, can I you know introduce yourself? Can I can I ask a favor? Sure. Says, well, I'm 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 writing this rap on the Keynes Hayek debate. Would would you take a look at the lyrics? And I'm like, I go take a step back. I've I've met this guy before. I you know, oh yeah 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 you know it's the like likelihood a, that, mm. I, that that I might have been planning to eat you for dinner was higher <laughs> it was than was non-zero. <laughs> yes, non-zero. But 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 as when I tell a story, I always say I looked at that first. I don't know how close those were to done. They were pretty close to done because a lot of it was still there. But I was so impressed. They were just so great. And I was like, oh. and then you said, oh, I'm working with Russ Roberts. I said, well, okay, now, right now, <laughs> now we got something here. So, so no, that was, it's, it's great. And the other, I don't know if you know the other story I like to tell about that video, nope. which is, uh, so I was still a skeptic, right? I'm like, okay, the, look, the lyrics are great. I feel better, but what, what is this thing going to look like? And who's going to, who wants to watch a video about that? I mean, so I was very skeptical. And then, um, some I wasn't at the AA meetings when you previewed it, but somebody else was and, and said to me, wow, it was really great. It was much better than I expected. And so I can't remember who it was right now. So I'm like, like, all right, I can, I can believe the production values are great. And I, I said, but, but who's going to watch this? Who's who, Are kids going to watch this thing? And then I show it in class. Right. And they love it. And I'm like, and I'm still not believing. I'm like, well, okay, but these are my students, right? Of course they're going to look at my students. And then, you know, what, four million views later, don't ever listen to Horowitz. Just I don't know. <laughs> you I know, don't know what's, I don't know what's happening. It, it um, 
So to take a couple steps back, you know, I, I started this journey of trying to understand the world in a deeper way as best I could. And one of the writers I came across obviously was Russ in the Econ Talk podcast. This is, you know, 2006 and seven. But you, you popped to the surface and it was, a, it was actually probably in, uh, first on your blog that you did with Pete Betke. And we've yeah. already interviewed Pete and talked at length about Mises and Marx on the yeah. uh, episode we did with uh, Pete Betke. Um, but tell, you know, so tell me about, for people that don't know you and your work, just, you know, what, can, give me your background. You know, uh, you're, you're an economist, right. you're a free marketeer, you're into this Austrian school, school um, uh, or Austro-Swedish school or whatever the hell you want to call it. <laughs> no, um, we'll stay with Austrian economics. Yeah, yeah, classical, classical yeah, liberal. Yeah. Yeah, uh, bottom up type of guy. But, you know, where did that start? How did you first get interested yeah. in economics? Yeah. So, so this is another, everyone has their origin story, right? All, all libertarians have an origin story. And, and I was in high school, uh, I go way back, right? So this is, this is a high school thing. In high school, I was one of those kind of classic geeky mid-teens high school kids. I read a lot of sci-fi and I was just sort of interested in, in anyone with a th weird theory of the world. So I even read like Bible prophecy and stuff like Chariots of the Gods was one of my favorite books for a long time. Cause this was like, oh, this was like the key, right? You understand the world now. And, and uh, I also was working at the public library at the time. And one day, uh, you know, the new books would come across and this book comes across and it seemed like here was another guy with another interesting theory of the world. And it was a book called Restoring the American Dream by Robert Ringer. Now, R Ringer was known in libertarian circles. This, is, this would have been 1979, 1980. I think the book is from 79, maybe. Um, Ringer was known, he was an investment guru guy and looking out for number one and this kind of stuff. But he wrote this book on sort of an intro to libertarianism in the sort of Ed Clark campaigns, again, 79, 80 period. And so I said, oh, here's another guy over here. I read, I picked up the book and read it and had this experience of, you know, oh, well, yeah, this is what I've always kind of believed, but never been able to articulate, right? These are my, this is my people, right? These are my people. <laughs> and, uh, and so I did what any precocious mid-teenager who worked at a library would do. And I said, all right, let's look at his bibliography. Who, who are the books he's, you know, who is he talking about? That would be the next book if I wanted to read more about this, right? Because that's, you know, 15 years old, that's what I was. And here's just the part that'll crack you up. What's the next book I read that our public library had was Rothbard's For a New Liberty. So <laughs> that so, was an early one for me. I yeah, have to say so, too. Right. For a New but, Liberty, and, yeah. and it was, it was, um, you know, Rothbard is so fiery. Yeah, and it will, but right, and it's, and you know, like Ayn Rand, right? You're particularly open to that. I think in your teens and in college years. And so, uh, so I, I went right into the deep end, right? Here's the uh, anarcho-capitalist argument, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, oh, for, right. Okay, right. Big time deep end. Uh, yeah, and so the other piece of the puzzle is uh, around the same time, uh, I took AP American Literature. And the woman who taught that course in my high school had on the reading list, The Fountainhead, which was awesome. And I didn't realize until my later years just how awesome and brave it was for her to put that on that reading list. So I read The Fountainhead would have been spring of 1980. 
uh, and then I said, all right, well, I got to read Atlas Shrugged now. And, and this is totally true story. I, I said, all right, well, school's out in June. I'll buy it and I'll read it over the summer. Because, like, you know, it's a big book. I, right. I started it. I didn't sleep for two days. I, I pretty much read it straight through in 48 hours. And I uh, couldn't read the rest. I am a, I'm a slow reader. There is not, it, it would have, it would take like amphetamines or something for me yeah, to have any well, hope of achieving that goal, well, even with no sleep. Right. I, I thought I was a fast reader. Then I married Squire who I, I can't even keep up with how fast she reads. Uh, <laughs> That's the but, ultimate superpower for me. It's right. Like, it is. It's I, would, great. I wish I could just like read a book in a day. It'd be, it's so, gr- be so great. Ty- Tyler Cowen, you know, who appears to read a lot of books. I'm not totally convinced he reads all of them all the way through. But okay. Uh, and Tyler once said, it took me 30 years to learn how to read this book so quickly. And, and, and his point being that you can read more quickly. I find myself when I read now sort of skimming over things because I know what the author is going to say, right? I just know it and I know what's important. And I sort of have this accumulated capital in reading that lets me, I'm in the middle of a very different kind of book right now. I'm reading uh, Jonathan Sachs's book, The Dignity of Difference, which people who follow me on Facebook will, will notice my rabbi, I've been quoting Rabbi Sachs recently. Uh, and this is a little different book, but even here, right, I'm, I can read it pretty quickly because I kind of know, you know, I know what I'm looking for and I know what he's going to say in some ways. And so, yeah, uh, but so, so just to finish the story, so I ended up uh, going off to University of Michigan and I was going to be a computer science major. I, you know, but I was still a hardcore libertarian. And my, so- my spring of my freshman year, my second semester, I needed one more course. And I thought to myself, well, you know, if you're going to do this libertarian stuff, it's probably a good idea. You should know some economics, right? And so I took intro econ and then had the other experience, the experience <laughs> that economists have, which is, oh my God, right? This is make sense of the world and sort of that same feeling. This is the way I've always thought about things. And now I have this systematic way of approaching it. And you just, you know, Boudreaux says yeah. the scales fall from your eyes and you fall, you're entranced, you fall in love. And, and so I majored in, in economics and philosophy. And I would say by the end of my sophomore year in college, every, pretty much everything that's happened to me since then is what I wanted to do by that point, to go to George Mason, get a PhD, teach at the college level. My dad is a retired college professor. Uh, teach at the college level. You know, my, my, my biggest goal, Pete Betke would, my, would tell you this story too. Our biggest goal in grad school was to have a book listed in the old laissez-faire books catalog. We thought if we could just do that, <laughs> if we could just have that, we, we wouldn't need anything else, right? So, uh, so, you know, all those things, all these things that have happened have been wonderful. And, I, you know, I have to say, and I'm, I'm happy to talk more about this if you want, but you know, where I am right now dealing with, uh, with a cancer diagnosis, uh, that's a good feeling, right? It's a good feeling to sort of look back and say, you know what, I set out, there were things I wanted to do. There was a life I had imagined and I got it mostly, right? So, you know, that's a, that's a good thing. Well, I, um, I think that it's, it's one of these incredible things when you can set out to engage in intellectual things as a job. Yeah. Oh, and it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's exciting. It's certainly how I see my job and what yeah. we do at our company. And it's weird that it's a company and it's like, right. a, it's like a purpose-driven company, but um, you know, I want to talk to you about this piece you wrote um, about social justice, because I think it's so interesting. And, and I think you bring a really important take to it. 
But before I do, um, you know, look, you're looking back on a, an academic life that's continuing and hopefully is going to be continuing mm. for many, many years and decades to come, Steve, because I love you and I mm. want, you know, nothing, nothing would. You and me both. You know, come on, man. Mm -hmm. you know, hang in there. Yeah, we're kicking it right now. You we're know? kicking it. So st yeah. stay out of Walmart. Um, <laughs> but uh, but um, what's your take on what's happening in academia? Uh, because, and I ask that as somebody who, you know, so if you're coming to this and you're hearing us talk about these terms like libertarianism or whatever, because, you know, we're not fundamentally like a political company or a political yeah. podcast, but, um, you know, that's a political philosophy. And yeah. uh, um, I don't like to lean into the worst angels of my nature. And the worst angels of my nature is... Well, academia has become kind of a, a cesspool of despair where free speech is being crushed and where 25% um, of the social scientists, social scientists in scare quotes, mm -hmm. self-identify in surveys as being Marxist, which is like believing in sort of a, a pre-germ theory of disease yeah. level yeah. science yeah. from my perspective. And so... I can go down this dark road, but I, I, I don't find that's, uh, that might all be true, yeah. but I don't think it's necessarily true. I want to hear what your take sure. is. Cause I think there's a lot of bombastic stuff. Yep, and there like, is. is it, is it just like there's a minority of loud jerks on college campuses wrecking it for everybody or is the group think and the cancel culture and the, is it, is it as bad as it seems from the outside? So a, a couple of thoughts. I have to preface it all with saying my experience of academia has been uniformly wonderful. And my experience, I was at St. Lawrence for 27, 28 years. And, uh, you know, I don't know what my colleagues thought of me when they were alone and I wasn't in the room, I can't say. But, but what I can say is that I was always treated with compassion with respect and uh, you know, I was an associate dean for six years. I was department chair for six years. I got, uh, I got voted into a name chair by my, it was a chair that was, we vote on as faculty. So my, my own colleagues voted me into that, into that chair. Uh, you know, so uh, I used to joke the one thing that they couldn't stand, the one thing about my politics, whatever that drove them bonkers, wasn't the sort of free market stuff per se, was that I didn't vote. And that was a non-voter, a conscientious abstainer, as I like to call it. Uh, <laughs> you don't and, want to encourage the bastards? <laughs> that's right, exactly. Uh, in college, I used to, I still found the pin recently. I used to have a pin that, that was U.S. out of North America, right? It was, you know, so, uh, but anyway, the, so my experience has been great. And, I, and my experience at Ball State now has been equally great. And so I, I do think a couple of things. I think uh, it is a minority of folks who are, who we see inordinate attention paid to. And I think it's particularly true at elite schools, right? right? If you get past the elite schools, and I think particularly if you get past the elite liberal arts colleges, right? But St. Lawrence is a sort of, you know, second tier, top of the second tier liberal arts college. And we're too busy teaching students and we're too busy, we're too concerned about teaching them well, I think, to, to have too much time for a lot of nonsense. And even, you know, it got, it, Things had gotten a little more like other places when I left, but still not a problem, right? In fact, my farewell remarks to the faculty were to 
to remind them to not fall into that abyss. Um, and I think at mid-level, like a ball state, these kids, these are first time, first generation college students, right? They don't have yeah. time for this stuff. They want a damn education. And most of us who are teaching there, right? Same thing. So, so I think it's a, it's a localized and loud phenomenon amplified, of course, now by social media, particularly by the, the, the dumpster fire that is Twitter. Um, and, and that's, but that's not to say it isn't real, right? I mean, I do think there is a younger generation of, I'll say the word scholars, though you can put that in scare quotes if you want to, <laughs> younger generation of faculty for whom, you know, these issues are more salient and, and sort of the cancel culture and these sorts of things really, uh, really are, you know, are part of who they are and, and they're convinced of their own wokeness and moral authority. And I think it's really, uh, it, it is a tougher environment. And I should also note, I'm biased being in economics where, you know, yeah. events of the last couple of weeks noted, uh, where it seems to be creeping into econ a bit, uh, uh, even so, right, it's a really different environment. So that I think that has to be taken with a little bit. My philosopher friends would, I think, have a different take. But but my experience, again, even with a small liberal arts college with people from other disciplines was we could talk about stuff and, and, and there was mutual respect there. So I don't, I think it's real. Um, and I think if one question like this, if I were a parent of a college bound kid, you know, what, what would I do? Right. Yeah. So what would you do? Um, I, a couple of things. Um, one, I'd be, first question I'd be asking is, does my kid really know, need to go to college? That's the first question. I think, I, I, you know, I, I don't, by this whole college is complete nonsense story, uh, your previous guest so noted. Uh, but but I but I also he wouldn't say nonsense. He'd say there's value in the signal. But but I also you know don't think everyone should go. And I think too many kids go to college uh, who who would be better off either not going or waiting a year or two or three. And I think we'll we're going to see some of that with COVID. Uh, so that's the first question. But the second question would be, I would go to places and, and, and if I were a parent and I did this with my own kids a few years back, you know, go and, and talk, ask questions and, and sort of, uh, you know, uh, talk to faculty if you can, sit in on a class if you can, uh, ask, I would ask the question uh, to administrators if you can about intellectual diversity on campus and see how, you know, see what they answer. Uh, it, could be, <laughs> it could be a load of nonsense, but that's important, right? And if you can talk to students, because um, the students will tell you things they won't say publicly or often in front of other students. So I think you just got to really be careful and ask around. I do think there's a, a mark, there used to be these sort of, I think there might still be a conservative guide to colleges sort of thing. I think there needs to be a classical liberal one too, right? That, you know, everyone's well, go to Hillsdale. Not well, Hillsdale's got its own stuff going on too. But I think yeah. there's plenty of other schools out there that you can be comfortable with as a, as a classical liberal. And I went to University of Michigan, for God's sake, as a hardcore libertarian, you know, uh, and not only survived, I had a great time. I had great faculty who, one of whom I'm still in touch with, right? So, you know. So, um, what does it mean to be a classical liberal? So someone who's uh, hearing us talk and we've sort of jumped right in in a real familiar way, but, you know, I think you and I probably would define our ideological philosophical perspective similarly, but I want to hear it like for you, for someone yeah. comes in to hear us talking, they're like, what are you talking about this classical liberal? Uh, what does that mean? Yeah. Well, I think classical classical liberalism is a philosophy that attempts to maximize uh, the freedom of individuals to trade as they wish, to speak as they wish, 
to sleep with whom they wish. Uh, that that for for classical liberals, uh, that those freedoms are are the key, are the most fundamental thing, and that it has some implications. One of which is that government should be minimal and limited in its powers. Uh, uh, and that that part of the belief in that they're part of our belief in human freedom is the belief that at least under the right institutions, the right rules of the game, leaving people free to to exchange and and speak and 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 interact with other human beings as they wish, will produce patterns of outcomes, emergent orders, one might say, uh, that that are that are beneficial, that are that uh, that generate progress. Right? We in the market, right? As an economist, we know that markets against under the right rules and institutions. Uh, people are led by an invisible hand to promote an end that was none of their intention and that uh, good things result and that markets have led to the progress, uh, human progress and particularly progress of the least well off. And for me in this, we can talk about this in light of the social justice stuff. I think uh, classical liberals have historically and need to remember that we have historically been champions of the least well off. But I think the same sort of idea of, of order and progress without a designer we can see in the realm of science and speech and and human, all realms of human interaction so the liberalism there is the idea of human freedom and the, and the, and the attempt to minimize coercion and to limit the state's powers uh, and the classical part of course is that this is a tradition that goes back hundreds of years right we we sometimes use the word libertarian now to to differentiate it from modern liberalism uh, but but that broader classical liberal tradition is is a, a long one. Yeah, it's it's in very interesting times because um, I've always liked classical liberal as a term, and I think it's partly because having kind of come to these ideas, growing up fairly conservative, um, uh, being exposed to people like Hayek and and your writings and others have made me more liberal <laughs> in, yeah. in in a lot well, of good. dimensions. Good. So. <laughs> So there's a kind of, um, you know, we have so many overlaying things going on right now that if you're a really truly classical liberal minded person, um, they're head scramblers. So uh, one of them is the presidency of Donald Trump, you know, which is uh, not especially classical liberal. No. It has, like, these little pockets of, you know, oh, well, he's cut a bunch of regulation and Maybe the tax policy wasn't the worst, although, you know, Milton Friedman would say, don't look at the taxes, look at the spending. That's right. Yeah. So, um, you know, low taxes, high spending today means high taxes tomorrow. But, um, but it's not a classical liberal orientation. It's a very top-down authoritarian yeah, orientation, right. very power, very, um, uh, you know, you see that. Right. And I, one thing I would add, right, I think that classical liberalism is, and I've made, tried to make this case, is uh, inherently cosmopolitan. It is, a, it is, uh, it recognizes that we're all connected globally, that human beings are human beings. It's a, it's a story about human rights, not American citizens' rights. And I think one of the worst sins of the Trump administration is to undermine one, or plus, but that's a, it's a terrible sin, but it's also one of the most fundamental ways it is not in any sense of the term classical liberal is precisely its rejection of that cosmopolitanism. And that's, that's yeah, both, both, at, both in terms of the treatment of immigration and, and globalization and yep, free trade. It's that's just, right. They're both right. People, people and goods cross borders. And, and, and that's, yeah. 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 
some other guy that was a jerk in high school now now got elected and and draws a line between you and me and suddenly what we're yeah. doing isn't legal anymore like that right. to me yeah. Yeah. at the most like kindergarten level is like isn't that just bullying is that just it, well it is <laughs> what and, is that and, right and <laughs> and the thing is it we forget it's easy to forget that we can't just regulate one side of an exchange when we say people can't cross borders and when we say goods can't cross borders it's not that we're just regulating the people who are trying to come to the united states or trade in the united states we're regulating the behavior of americans too right i mean so there's no sense in which uh you know uh that, that kind of protectionism and that kind of uh anti-immigration you know uh stuff is anything but restrictions on the freedoms of americans there's just no way to salvage it in terms of a classical liberal worldview so um one of the so so you've got that thread mm -hmm. right and because he's a so so you know you've been at this longer than me so why is it in your perspective that um classical liberals libertarians have generally tended to be seen as on the political right of yeah. center in america and i think it's an, an interesting time to ask that question because you have people who have long called themselves conservatives, Jonah Goldberg, yeah. uh, George Will, people who, again, like, you know, for, for the average person, maybe these are not household names, but if you're yeah. into politics or, you know, you like to read philosophical, ideological stuff, you probably know about George Will, you maybe know about Jonah Goldberg. They now are tending to call themselves classical liberal. Um, but it's in part a kind of rejection right. of, of the movement on the political right and especially about trump so 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 how does that how did that yeah. why is that the case you know i look at like somebody like jfk and he's like more classical liberal in a lot yeah. of respects than like george w bush yeah i think so so how did this all happen why were yeah. why are like why is donald trump jr gonna be speaking at oh. freedom fest which oh. is an ostensibly libertarian uh, um, yeah. uh, event coming up like that like how is there this fusion yeah. i think i think so i think the answer comes in two stages there's a historical story which is anti-socialism right i mean both you know conservatives and classical liberal but let's back up one more step we think about the 20th century there was we forget that there was a time in the 20s and 30s and 40s where all intellectuals were socialists. I mean, it just was, right? You just were a socialist. And, and socialism, socialist ideas were on the rise and we were seeing them in pieces anyway, put into practice in places even, I'm not even thinking like Soviet Union, even Great Britain and so on, right? So I think for classical liberals, there was a sort of, you know, a friendship of a partnership of necessity with true conservatives uh in in their mutual concern over socialism and 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 their their quite reasonable fear that that socialism would destroy western civilization right and and this is you know that shared commitment and those shared ideas i think were were, were part of why libertarians and classical liberals ended up on the right okay uh and i think if you so fast forward right the interesting event is the fall of the Berlin Wall, right? Now socialism's dead. So for why, now. Yeah, for now, right, well, it, yeah, it's, it, we thought it was dead. It's like a scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, not, not quite dead. Uh, we, we, you know, but the question, we, I thought that would fracture, right? And I thought that now that that was out of the way, 
classical liberals and, and, and conservatives could differentiate themselves. And it didn't happen. And then we got 9-11 and all these, you know, other things that 9-11 that, that, uh, in particular led to this revival of nationalism that I think made, made possible, you know, made an, created an environment in which a Trump could come along and, and, and be successful in doing the things he's done. But I think the thing to keep in mind is there is what I think unites the Trumpists and the right today is the over the their first priority is to own the libs it's it's there's no program of their own it's simply how do we piss off the people who we perceive have all the cultural power and who have done all these things and so you know i mean that's the only way to understand i mean that's part of well it's the only way it's one way to understand trump and to understand the people who who support and especially people who support him but but know all his flaws right i mean evangelicals being one group, but others too, right? Why? Well, because the other guys are so much worse and it's so much fun to finally have a guy who stand up and poke at them in the way they've been poking at us for a while. And it's a kind of weird Schadenfreude revenge thing, I think that that is, is part of this. And that's unfortunate because it's not a political philosophy. It's, it's, it's just anger and, and so on. I, I think the most, dis and your point about Trump Jr. speaking at Freedom Fest, if you call, Trump spoke there in 2015, it was one of his earliest events, right? Where he was sort of thinking about doing this. There's been nothing more disappointing to me in the last few years than to realize how many self-described classical liberals and libertarians were just contrarians. That in the end of the day, and I think this grew out of Ron Paul too, right? The, re the support for these people and the use of that name was simply to be different and to be, to be contrarian, and in some cases to provide intellectual cover for their racism and their sexism and their xenophobia. But the moment Trump came along and gave voice to that and gave them someone they could glom onto, there they went. And I, you know, that's, it's, you can tell by my, my exasperation. Well, and, and, and I, won't, I, I will say I'm not always a huge fan of these posts from you, but, um, you are, uh, you are, you have been a vociferous sort of in, in, interior to this world critic of libertarians. Yeah, someone you know, has to you, do it. <laughs> you know, you're definitely somebody who, as a libertarian, will often post what libertarians should be doing yeah. is insert Steve's thought. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a, you know, I have a, my role model there in some ways is Deirdre McCloskey, who, who you know, got the nickname Auntie D for, for scolding the economics profession about what it should do. Uh, and, and so I'm, I, I admit to being a bit of a scold, but, you know, we're, we can be, and we have been so much better than that. And, and it's, the ideas are, too good and too important and the cause is too just to let the bad guys have the name and to let the that behavior define us right i mean that's i, I just i can't i'm I'm. i mean just going back to where we were a little while ago i've been at this since what 40 years now right since 1980 79 80 right and and it's i'm too invested in it to let the bad guys steal it you know i think that um one of the things that's so interesting to me is, and uh, we're gonna, so, so much of this will be the great underpinnings for the conversation about social justice, because I think it all mm -hmm. ladders up to why does that term, yeah. how, do, how do you filter that term at the gut level um, before you even start to process ways of thinking about it um, or understanding it. But um, I think that 
um, there's a there's te- there's a temperamental component to people's politics that might even point towards the genetics of it. You know, I know like Brian and some of these twin studies, you know, even for people who've seen three identical strangers, it's sort of like the documentary manifestation of the twin studies where I don't, I don't want to give too much away, but you have three um, identical twins that were raised in very different backgrounds, very different family lives, and yet all end up having these remarkable similarities. They're not clones of each other, right. but they're more similar. If, if, if you believe that there's a that we are born as a blank slate, I don't know how you believe that in live, like live and interact with people or, or have ever met a child. But yep. I mean, I, I I'm being dismissive of it because I think it's a it doesn't survive any human experience mm-hmm. to believe people are a blank slate. But um, it is it is somewhat upsetting how much of our predilections and temperaments might be a little ordained in our genes, at least set by default. And so do you think there's something, you know, you, you called it, you know, some of the so-called libertarians, uh, contrarians. Yeah. Is there something maybe not about liber, lib, liberal or classical liberal or libertarian ideas, but is there something about that, about a, 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 a you know, because there, it's fundamentally kind of an anti-authority yeah. philosophy. And yeah. is there like a temperament of being sort of screw the man kind of posture? Yeah. I don't know if is, it's... That sits below the philosophy yeah. that is sort of yeah. the driver of it? I don't know if it's a temperament per se. I do think it's a feature of adolescence, of young people, right? Um, one of the things I think a lot about when I teach intro econ especially is the idea of I'm giving these young people this set of ideas that their friends don't have. And they get a kind of, con- they get a kind of contrarianism out of it, a kind of cool cachet, right? I mean, I like to, my vision is the friends are arguing over some politics, you know, late night in the dorm. And one of my students is sitting there just listening kind of coolly, casually. Finally says, you, you don't know, you know, <laughs> you know, here's, here's what's, you know, here's another way of looking at it. Here's what's really going on. And I, so I do right. think there's a, an appeal to young people. I mean, my own, that's my own history, right? It is that. So I think that contrarianism appeals to young people in a certain sort of way. And, and we think about adolescence now lasting into the twenties. And so I think that to me is a, more of an explanation than something that's sort of an evolutionary. I think there are some interesting evolutionary reasons why people don't like markets, right? Hayek is certainly, talked about and I think he's on to something there sort of evolutionary psychology type stuff but I think in terms of why people I'm not sure there's a that kind of disposition to contrarianism I think that contrarianism is a social phenomena of adolescence where, where kids just want to rebel against all the, their parents and the, and I mean even the use of the word normie right and that whole culture is all sort of rebellion and 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 and, and, and trolling culture and all these kind of things right are all about that. And I, I think that's that's a better explanation of, and, and I think that really is, you know, the, the sadly it's part, it, it often attracts young people to classical liberal ideas because they are different and an outlier and contrarian in a real sense. But it also makes them, if, if that contrarianism is what they get stuck on, then they're susceptible to the worst kinds of stuff, right? right. I think yeah. the real key is to grab the contrarianism and root it in, ideas and principles in a way that that immunizes them 
to pure contrarian. So, you know, for, to the extent that, um, you know, 17 year olds get Atlas shrugged and get super stoked about it. And uh, I was that that's, kid. that was, that's one path, but for, I think maybe more, they get stoked about somebody that's more like Marx yeah. and is, and is calling for revolution and change mm -hmm. and equality and those things who doesn't like equality at some level and who doesn't want change when you see a world that's got problems. Um, and so I think this sort of takes us to, you know, where I, why I reached out to you, right. Yeah. Which is this, this notion of social justice. So if a classical liberal is um, saying, look, we want to individual human rights, universal individual human rights, the right to be left alone, but more importantly, the right to be, the right to live peacefully and interact peacefully with other people. So you can't beat people up, steal their stuff. Right. If, you, if you make something or you find something first, it's yours. If you find write, keepers, write, yeah. you know, if you do, a, if you write a contract and you break it, that's, that's, that's wrong. Um, you know, th these, these basic ideas are the, are the kind of classical liberal toolkit. You, you have these, these, these other frameworks. And, um, and so, so before we get into what you wrote, like, give me a primer on this. Like what, cause social justice isn't talking about simply like this individualistic yeah. framework that's the word social i think is meant specifically to separate it from that or to put it as opposed to that perhaps but so what is social justice yeah. where did this i where i think this word's pretty this phrase is pretty old yep but but where does it come from what is it what has it meant yeah i think so historically the idea behind social justice was as you say that ensuring justice and particularly justice in outcomes was not merely about the individual choices, but that we collectively had some responsibility for ensuring some pattern of outcomes. So, you know, clearly that opens up room for the state to step in and, and redistribute and pass, you know, do other kinds of laws, whatever, to ensure that, uh, that justice is done. And normally this, I mean, historically, this was a we now sort of say it was class-based. It was a concern about the poor, concern about making sure that folks uh, who, who didn't have a lot had enough. And so uh, that use of social justice was, it wasn't, you know, if you think about it, and if everyone, if every individual behaved justly, we might still have an outcome in which some people, uh, some people are, are, are left behind, are poor or, or whatever. And if we believe we have an obligation to lift them up and make sure at least they reach some minimum standard, then the belief by many was, okay, that's now about social justice. We need to, we need to intervene in ways to make sure that happens. I think what's happened, what happened over the 20th century is that that term, like so much else, got expanded out of class beyond class into race and gender and all of these other kinds of categories, identity categories that we think about where we say, well, you know, it's, it's true. If we look at African-Americans in the United States, their outcomes compared to whites are notably worse. What can we, you know, that's a problem of social justice, right? So, so what, what do we do? Uh, and similarly, right, we, you know, gender though, less so and certainly better than it used to be with gender. And you can make the same argument about gay and trans and all the rest. So, so I think that that's, um, 
that's that's the uh, sort of you know uh, uh, origins of it. And I think and there's a noble instinct there, right? And there's a liberal instinct, classical liberal instinct there too, which is to make sure that that. You know, folks who uh, that every that 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 institutions work to the to the interests of the better off and the, to at least well off and make sure that they are they are made better off. So I think there's two um, to to dig into that a little bit more because I know you've I've heard you talk about um, John Stuart Mill, yeah, as being someone who uh, you know sort of if if you want to sort of be uh, if you want to break down well-intended people who want the world to be better into two categories that make more sense than left and right. I think maybe you could say people who approach things from a kind of individual rights perspective and people who approach things from a kind of collective or class perspective. Would you say that's maybe like a decent yeah, way to... Or, right. Or, or I think which maps closely is people who think that, that, that you know, beneficial social outcomes can, can come unintended versus those who think that that you need a you need a, you know designers a strong term uh so, policy you know, social yeah, policy yeah 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 so but so you have mill you have hume you have like adam smith and the moral sentiments in particular you have these grappling with what does a just society look like i mean you can obviously go back yeah. to plato and right i mean this notion of justice is part of you know main mainline philosophy going all the way back to the greeks and certainly in other traditions i'm sure as well um but the social part comes in in kind of particular forms in particular ways mm -hmm. so in this piece which you wrote for the libertarianism.org it's um you know libertarians who, who dismiss social justice are mistaken is your title so you're yeah, <laughs> well, token, you you, and, you say um, you say it's my title, <laughs> <laughs> or the title which was ascribed to the there you written. go. Yeah, but uh, it, I'm fine with it. It's a very uh, Horwitzian title, though. Yes, it is. Knowing, knowing you oh. and your Facebook feed. Yeah. Um. But so you you make an. I'm going to read a, a little bit from from the top. You say sure. although some libertarians are comfortable with the term quote social justice, it's probably fair to say that a clear majority is not often citing Hayek's critique of the term or generally rejecting the set of policy proposals that they assume come along with endorsing the term. For many years, I was part of that majority, but over the last decade or so, I have become much more comfortable with the idea that libertarians can and should be advocates for social justice. I hope to make that case in what follows. So, um, you know, the first part. So, you know, Friedrich Hayek, classical liberal economist, 20th, 21st century rap star. <laughs> um, he has, a, he, he, he pushed back against this concept of social yeah. justice in a, or, in, or a particular conception yeah. of it. So lay out his, what, what was he, what did he have to say? Cause he was a smart guy. And yeah, he, he was. And he, and he wasn't wrong. Okay. I mean, I think, so to go back to where we were a little bit ago, right. If, 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 if what is meant by social justice is uh, uh, some some sort of relative of social planning, that is, we need to sort of create a top-down set of policies that will redistribute wealth or income or resources, you know, in, in, according to some preset pattern. 
Hayek had sort of two objections to this. First was a sort of philosophical one, which, it's, which is to say, justice has to be connected up with uh, intention, with, with action, right? That, that, you know, if I club you over the head, I'm being unjust, right? Uh, we know, we know, who, the, we know who, who engaged in the unjust action. We can identify me and we can, we can decide how we want to handle that socially. The problem with social justice is, Hayek said, is that there's no actor there, right? There's no, it, it, it doesn't make sense as a category of justice because we can't identify who's responsible for the injustice, right? Right, And so, so his argument was, if you accept that meaning of justice, right, social justice is a, it's just, it's a nonsense term. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, right? Secondly, even if you accept that it makes sense, right, then we sort of have the problem with redistribution and, and top-down planning and all these sorts of things, which is to say, uh, and this is the same argument that Robert Nozick, the philosopher around the same time, actually made against John Rawls, which is liberty upsets patterns, right? If you, if you decide that what you have to do is make the world conform to a particular pattern of outcome, either you got to restrict people's liberty significantly in order to try to make that happen and Hayek would add, and that's still not going to work or you just right. can't you just can't do it and you got to give people freedom and 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 accept the fact that it's never going to meet some pattern so i think that that those two things together are sort of why hayek thought that that social that social justice as he understood that term and 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 was probably true of that term you know, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, right, was, was, was nonsense. Um, so, you know, to, to, to I, we just did this um, long, long sought for myself and uh, finally realized Mises versus Marx, the third, yeah. sort of third rap. And it's there. great. It's great. And, um, and, you know, you have long said, oh, I can't wait for you to read Mises because I really not read a lot of Mises. And Mises makes these points. He's far more um, strident than Hayek, and uh, which I actually kind of like. I think it makes for better reading. But, yeah, um, it's a little, it's a little sprightlier. Yeah, but he, you know, he starts with this basic thing that I think Hayek is sharing in what you described, right? Which is that um, when we use terms like "we decide," or that America went to war or that China is cheating us, that these are sort of a linguistic fiction, that there is not, and people bristle when you hear that, when they hear this, but that there isn't really a we as it's in in the sense that the the sort of shorthand is being used. When, When a group of us, when a group of people get together and an outcome that affects all of them emerges out of their conversation, like where are we gonna eat? It isn't really we decide unless every single person was in 100% agreement, total 100% consensus. If there was any dissent, there, it isn't really we, it is some. And so the question is then, that outcome is what we could call an emergent outcome. Maybe, maybe you took a vote, maybe you drew straws, you did some process That's right. to arrive at the outcome, and, but, the, but it was not a choice by like a hive mind in the same way that we think of our own choices that we make in our heads, right? Is yeah, that a fair? Right. I think that's right. And two, two quick points, and then I'll say more. It's also true when we say things like Walmart lowered prices, right? Right. That's, a, that's another we, we, that, you know, it's not. And, and Corporations uh, are just a legal fiction. That's right. Just a group of people so, with, so, a, with some contracts. That's right. And so all of these things are, as you say, processes of individual 
exchange, action, negotiation, conversation. But as you also noted, they're structured by rules and processes, right? So we, we, yeah. you know, you, like you said, you have to have some way of deciding where you're going for lunch and yeah, whatever so it is, whatever it is, right. Those are, those rules of the game will, that's what filters through our individual filters, our individual choices to produce those outcomes. And I think that's a really important point because people sometimes forget this when we talk about, you know, people say, well, self-interest leads to, you know, even defenders of markets say self-interest leads to great outcomes, right? Greed is good. No, depends on the rules, right? Because <laughs> me clubbing you over the head is still greedy self-interest, but we don't think of that as being socially good because those are not you know, rules that let me do that are not good rules. So, so I think that's, yeah, I think that's, we, we always have to remember there, there's no, there's no it, there's no we in that sense, right? Um, and so and there's a, there's a justice then, right? That, and, and these are maybe, and I'm not an expert in this, right. these, I haven't done deep reading on this, but I, I it, you know, I'm, I'm working on a project that is a, derives um, a lot of its inspiration from the coddling of the American mind by Jonathan wow. Haidt and yeah. Greg Lukianoff. Yeah, great book. And they spend some time at a kind of pop philosophy level trying to grapple with this concept of social justice because they see it as being that, that a they attribute some of the some of the issues in college campuses and also just some of the psychology breakdown that people are experiencing as as being rooted in perhaps a ill ill-defined or inappropriate way of thinking about social justice and one of the one of the things that they say is you know you have distributive justice a con like equal outcomes, you know, we all get the same, like a doctor and a, and a plumber are make, both make $75,000 a year because we all do, no matter what we do. That's the extreme version, but yeah, something akin to equal outcomes is justice or procedural justice, which is to say, yes, we have this process. So we're all gonna get together. There's 10 of us, we're all diverse. But we've decided we've 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 all come to this place because we're going to have dinner together. But there's disagreement over what to where to go. And so, how do we figure that out so that there's procedural justice? And the outcome is going to be a kind of equal outcome in that particular instance. But what we're talking about is it fair? Right. That's I was just going to say that's the word is fair. Right. Is it fair? Is not really a question of whether we all get what we want. Some of us are going to not want to go out for Chinese, but we're going to end up there anyway because of the process. Right. And and so this is interesting because this is in Hayek and it's also in Rawls and Buchanan in 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 in, in James Buchanan, the Nobel economist, all in, in the same sort of way basically said. If people agree on the rules, then the outcome is, and, and people obey the rules, then the outcome is just, right? I mean, that's, I'm, I'm simplifying, but essentially, right. right, if we can come up with a set of rules that we all agree on, right, uh, and then we, we play the game according to those rules, whatever the outcome of the game is, is just. And, and, and sports is the analogy here, right? If, if we agree on the rule, everyone agrees on the rules of, on the hockey fan, let's take hockey, agrees on the rules of hockey, and the rules are enforced fairly by the referees, right? That one team wins isn't, you know, we can't say it's unjust, right? We agreed yeah. to the rules, we right, right. So- And so, distributive justice applied to that hockey game would suck. Right, no, that's right, that's right. <laughs> it means I you'd mean, always have a tie. Right, And right. no one's gonna, no one's gonna right. take any risks that's, that might hurt themselves because right. the outcome right. doesn't matter anyway. Right, and we, we have, I mean, the, my favorite example of this is, is you got the piece of cake left and you and your 
you know, your spouse or your sibling, I have to divide it up. You cut, I decide, right? That's a, that's a set of rules that we, okay, you know, we, we get it. We see what the thing is and the game theory works and, and, and we agree that it's fair. So, and you can't complain afterwards because you agreed to that procedure, right? Or, you know, odds and evens are all of us. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I think that, that and, and that's, I think we, it is true. So, so the, the criticism of procedural justice is, from the left is that it allows for these inequalities that for that even if we think they are fair in the sense of having gone to, through this procedure leave some people in situations that are untenable that are that are just they're discriminated against they're they're too poor to survive i mean whatever whatever version of it you want to adopt um and 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 they can say in some sense and it's nobody's fault right there, there's 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 that's the social component it's frankly i mean it, for, for classical liberals, one way of thinking about this is an unintended consequence, right? It's, a, it's an emergent outcome. I don't want to say order, but it's an emergent outcome that no one, one person's responsible for. But if you right. believe it's on, you know, and I would add further, and this is more to sort of where I went in my own argument, if you think the rules are unfair, then you're going to get outcomes that, that, are, are, that seem unjust. But again, it's not easy to put a finger out to who acted unjustly and we might see ways of correcting our that unjust that unjust outcome in terms of fixing the rules that is a better process as opposed to distributing or redistributing right so you know obviously you know you've written this piece and it's published um, in the you know on june 10th and right at the top the first words are are about the the killing of george floyd and so you know this piece is directed at people who I think everyone, I've yet to see anyone who thinks that the killing of George Floyd was anything other than a miscarriage of, 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 of sure. justice and humanity. Yeah, my Facebook but, feed says otherwise. But, but well, yeah, I mean, that's right. There, there, are, actual, there are actual horrible people out there yeah. who, um, you know, but, but by and large, let's, yeah. let's, just, let's just say, you know, I'll use my, um, my dad, my dad is a doctor and he said, you know, there's just 15% of people that come in and you know, they're one of those 15% yep. that are just like Students. miserable, terrible. Something's wrong with their life, but they're going to take it out on you. 10% so of say, the students, 90% of the problems. Yeah. So it's like, let's say somewhere between 10 and 15% will yeah. set them off to the side. They need to yep. relax, go to do some self-help. Um, but for everybody else, it's like, oh, that was awful. That's horrible. Yeah. And then it opens a lot of questions about, okay, so, and now what? Yeah, and, right. we'll, and we have this movement, protests slash protests shading into mobs, some protests, some mobs, hopefully mostly protests, but definitely some mobs, mm-hmm. um, asking for social justice. At the end of the day, that's kind of the big picture thing they're asking for, mm-hmm. right? And so that, that in, that's the... So what's the libertarian case to sort of lock arms with at least some of these folks? Right. I think that was kind of where you were headed. Yeah, that's this. right. Yeah. That, I, right. So I would start by saying we, we shouldn't reject the broad claim that you made, right? That, that this killing was a, was a murder. <laughs> it was a tragedy of justice. Uh, and that we want to live in a world where that doesn't happen, right? Or at least happens as infrequently as possible. I mean, there's no perfection anywhere um so in that sense yeah. yeah right and 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 we should agree i think that that with the call for justice here call it social justice if you want to for the reasons we've been talking about the question then becomes okay how what 
right? And, and uh, you know, if, if the answer is, well, this is just racism, it's just because white people are racist and that's what's doing this, right? That, I don't think that, I don't think it's, I don't think it's not part of the explanation, <laughs> it is. But if that's all it is, that doesn't get us very far because then we're talking about people's hearts and so on, right? And that's why folks on the left will say, well, it's institutional racism, it's structural racism, it's built into the very institutions and structures. It's not about people's hearts. It's not about what people think or feel. It's about the way that those institutions are structured and how those produce racist, you know, racially disparate outcomes. And I think framed that generally, I think that's right. The question is which institutions, what pieces of them, and so on. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things about the George Floyd and BLM stuff is that libertarians have been on this police and race, sort of intersection of police and race and qualified immunity and all these issues that we've been talking about. We've been there for a long time. I and mean, Radley Balco, for God's sakes, has been, right. you know, he's a freaking hero. He's been on this for so long. And the militarization of the, of the police as well, mm-hmm. like Chris Coyne's yep. work and Abby Hall Bacco's work. So, I, so all this kind of stuff is there. And, and so point, you know, we're pointing to those as the source of the problem and, and where to look for the solution. And I think that what the argument we're making is one about institutional and structural racism. It, 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 the fact is that these institutions and these ways of doing things uh, produce racially disparate outcomes. It means, you know, once you give power to cops, right, cops are going to exercise that power according one to their hearts, but also according to who it's easiest to pick on and, you know, where the, you know, and so on. So, so it's no surprise, right? And for example, the enforcement of mask wearing rules, right? We already know it's being enforced 80, 90% on minority communities, not on white folks at Kroger, right? So, so once you create, we, part of the institutional structural point is once you create these institutions of power, they're going to be, the outcomes are going to be racially, racially unequal. And so the question is, it's not just about people's hearts. It's about fixing these institutions in ways or changing the rules of the game in ways that don't let bad people do bad things. So, um, and so, you know, to lay out, break down for, for the skeptic who comes in and says, nah, I, this is all just, they want socialism or something. I don't know what this is. Well, this many is of them, yeah, many of them do. Or something. I don't, yeah. it's, I, I don't, I, I don't trust it. I don't, I don't know what they're saying. Then whatever they're saying is different than what I think they actually want. Like break down where you see the common ground for people mm-hmm. of goodwill who see these things and they use these terms, systematic or systemic. Mm-hmm. And you're, you've used this term institution. Yeah. You know, my grandfather used to say, you know, marriage is a great institution <laughs> if you like institutions. And <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I think marriage is a great institution. Right. Um, right. Uh, do, but I'm not sure if I like institutions. I guess it depends. If I'm in a straight jacket, I probably right. don't like right. them. Right. If, it's, uh, if it's hockey rules. So right. what does this mean? What is this? Let's start there. Yeah. Institu- you say this word yeah. institution. You and, you and Betke and... And, and um, you know, these sort of new institutionalists love yeah. these, this word. It's still kind of a weird abstract word. It is. It's very high level, right? Because it so encompasses... Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, it, it encompasses all of the rules and norms and practices that guide and govern human behavior, including uh, in f- both formal and informal. Sort of. So, 
tacit uh, rules of the game. Yeah, often, yeah, the rules of the game are often, are often tacit, right? It's nowhere written, I mean, this is pre-COVID, but if, if you walk up to someone and they extend their hand, you extend your hand, shake their hand, right? That's an informal rule, right? There's no law, it's not written down yeah. anywhere, but we, but we know. Um, so so those, all of those things are under the broad category of institutions. And sometimes we use that word institution in a little bit narrower sense to refer to more formal ones like the police uh, or the justice system in, in the cases we're talking about. Markets or property rights are institutions in that sense. They're all rules, of, all of those things are rules of the game. So, so that's what we mean by institutions. And again, I think this, to stay with this analogy, right? Um, if, if the rules are, if you change the rules, you change the incentives facing people and you thereby change the outcomes, right? If you, if you make yeah. field goals in football worth five points instead of three, suddenly everybody's drafting kickers and people are, kick, you know, kicking more field goals, right? So you can see how the game, the strategy changes, everything changes, right? Yeah. So if you, if you have the electoral college campaigns behave that's differently. Right. That's right. Then if you, have a, if you have um, just popular a straight vote. popular vote, they're, that's they're right. suddenly... Uh, Republicans are spending time in California. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. To try to peel off whatever California. Yeah, all five of them. Yeah. 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 Or so, whatever. Right. Or, or right. Democrats in Texas, although right. we've got big cities. So it's a little. Yeah. You know, that's exactly, no, that's exactly yeah. right. So, so when we talk about institutions that way and talk about institutional racism, what we mean is that the, that the, 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 the rules of the game are such that uh, people pursuing their, their own interests are going to produce outcomes, un, often unintentionally, right, that, that, are, that are racially disparate in ways that, that trouble us. And it's not because the people were necessarily racist. They might just be pursuing their self-interest, but the rules of the game are such that it leads to those, it leads to those outcomes, right? If, you know, if, for example, I mean, the classic economic example uh, these days is minimum wage laws, right? Which, yep. which well, it turns out that their origin was racist, but now explicitly the people, so. Explicitly yeah, so, but now the people don't. who support, right, yeah, people don't know that very. But but today, <laughs> people who support minimum wage laws are generally not racist and really are trying to do the right thing. But they but they create a system of incentives that lead people pursuing their self interest, even if they're best of intentions, to per, to, to to disproportionately uh, cause unemployment among among African Americans among people of color. So th that's I think. From a classical, classical liberal perspective, this is where we can agree that the problem is institutional and structural. It's not about changing people's hearts. It's not you need more black friends. It's not right. You, yeah. Those sorts. You're not. It's not frankly putting on a kente cloth and getting. In, you know, right. I mean, it's it's not <laughs> that. It's about fundamentally thinking through how the rules of the game and how those institutions are structured in ways that that. A, a couple now for the critic for the skeptic, right. Part of the problem, I think, is that many of the folks on the left who adopt social justice, you know, tend to say those institutions and rules were, were all of them were consciously created by racists for the purpose of racial, you know, racial discrimination. That's why they're there. And I think classical liberals can say, well, okay, sometimes, yeah, we, we, we can look at the history and say sometimes, but other times these institutions evolve and change. They are themselves emergent orders, right? And, and, or disorders in this case. And sometimes they've come about in ways that, you know, uh, are more complicated than that, but nonetheless have those consequences, right? And I think there's a, there's a that's one uh, skeptical approach. I think another skeptical approach, which um, I think, I could be inclined to myself as to say, I totally agree with the systematic, the review of the rules of the game 
and I've read Radley Balco and I'm 100% on board and I've seen it firsthand in my own experience. I've talked about the um, people I've met over the years who've come from very different backgrounds and their experience of the cops when it comes to drug use were wildly different, Yep. you know, and whether or not you were, you know, a rich kid in Greenwich, Connecticut or a right. poor black kid I, in Newark, the, the way the cops treated you if they found drugs on you was very, I, very different. I had a former colleague who used to, African-American colleague who used to say about students getting treated differentially, says, if you go down to the courthouse, there's no justice, there's just us. Right. And I think that's right. And I agree with that. And I think that, so then you, but then you have this other layer and I would put parts of something like the 1619 project in this category where you say that these are sort of unpatchable cracks in the foundation of their entire society. And that we're all kind of guilty with a sort of almost religious original sin. Yep. And so the only thing, and even though like my ancestors came to the United States post bellum, they were in, yeah. in the in early 1900s. They yeah, were- so As did mine. Poor, you know, if you're like Italian or Jewish or like so many, or if you're, you know, so many Americans have come post end of post civil yeah. war and can, and can acclaim like, don't like, don't brand me with that. Mm-hmm. But even more importantly, don't brand me as an individual for like the sins of the father shouldn't beget the son. But even all of that re- rolls up to this notion that, well, no, 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 no. It's all sort of part and parcel with um, a corruption that can't be cleansed, a kind of Macbeth moment yeah. of the spot that can't be removed from yeah. the hand and therefore blow it all up along with Mount Rushmore. Um, the Constitution is a slaveholder document, even with the amendments that got made. Tear that stuff apart. Um, we need to start over. I don't have much of a vision for what that start over looks like. That's We'll get there from here, yeah. but the first step is tear it all down. Yeah. And I, I don't think everybody in the, I know that that is not the view held by right. many, maybe not most, but it's a vocal enough minority. And in some cases, they're vocal people in high places in our culture yeah making this kind of claim yeah and and, and how yeah. do you grapple with that yeah, I, think, I think yeah. i think that's the wind that's the well and that's a reasonable wind that takes somebody like me and who's like 100 percent on board with a social justice framework that treat, looks at looks to the margins and says how do we make sure the rules mm. favor those people not just as neutral right, but right. actually is if anything, built bent yeah. towards the marginalized, and and sort of says and kicks me out and calls me a racist and says like, well, you're not, you're yeah. not, you shouldn't be at the table for this conversation. I don't care what you have to say. Yeah, so that's a there's a lot going on there. I know. I'm sorry. Like right, I, I okay. monologued I, there, but I mean, I think right. I, I want to. I'm trying to. I, I, I want to create a space for all yeah. these places yeah. to converge. No, you've you've articulated, I think, an important set of critical ideas here, right? So part of it is, you know, deconstructing stuff is easy. Reconstructing stuff, not just hard, it's impossible, right? And so part of the, one of the, I wrote a piece a long time ago when I was writing regularly for Fee that sort of made the point that, look, 
you know, uh, just because you can deconstruct something doesn't mean you can reconstruct it. And it also doesn't mean that the, as I was saying earlier, that the institution- Was it a letter to Noam Chomsky? Is that what- No, no. Was, so, but, but more importantly, it, the point I was making earlier, which is just because something uh, creates bad outcomes doesn't mean it was consciously created ever or, or even invented, whatever the purpose, invented by humans, right? I mean, the, you know, my own work, the family over the years didn't do very well by women and children, but it wasn't because we invented a family for that purpose. Rather, the you know, the long evolution of the family was such that that's combined with other social forces, right? So, so I think there's, there's that hubris, there's that constructivist yeah. rationalism in this movement that says, we're going to tear it all down and rebuild it from the ground up. No, you're not, you can't. And this is where I think Hayek's important, right? To sort of talk about the idea that inherited, that, that inherited institutions and traditions are important there's hikes very clear to say there is space for us to improve upon those and that we should, and we should always be mindful in doing so of, you know, the, the, the sort of least well off. And this is in Adam Smith too. Right. But we can't construct, reconstruct them all. We always have to have something that we hold on to. Uh, and I, and, and so I think that's part of the response. And I think I love King's letter from Birmingham jail. And one of the reasons I love it is because he doesn't do that. He, he, what he does is to say, let's take these beliefs and, and, and institutions that we have that we are good and let's use, let's hold ourselves to those. He's saying to America, to white America, do you really mean it when you say these things, right? And, and if you really mean it, here's what we should be doing. And so that, that is a different kind of critique and more imminent critique, right? And I, I think we just have to continue to, on this point about blowing everything up and reconstructing it, we have to continue to make this point that you, you're not, you know, I wouldn't put it this bluntly, but you're not smart enough. None of us are smart enough to build institutions from the ground up. We don't, we can't imagine what the effects of that would be. We're the accumulated wisdom of tradition. And I'm not talking about, obviously not talking about slavery and things like this, but the accumulated wisdom of property rights and the liberal institutions that you want to blow up, you're, you know, that they were associated with slavery doesn't make them invest completely invalid. It means that there's room for improvement. And I also think, and I was watching this wonderful interview with Glenn Lowry that Reason uh, just did. And Lowry makes the point, he says, let's look at the improvements to, the, to African-Americans material well-being over the last 50 years, much less than 100 or whatever, right? And, and he said, you know, we, we can't deny that those once freed, those institutions have served us reasonably well, not as well as they should have, but, but reasonably well. Why do we want to blow those up, right? And so I think that, that's one. I think there's a second part of your monologue that's a more difficult one which is the, what I like to call the attempt to monopolize the moral high ground, which is to say, oh, only we, whoever the we is, have moral truth. And therefore, if you're not on board 100% with us, you're out of here, right? We're, kick, we're pushing you off onto the ice flow, out into the, right? You know, you're, you're just, you're, you're outside of civilized society. And this is the cancel culture, and this is Twitter, and this is all this kind of stuff. I wish I, wish I had a better answer for that, other than to say, I think that classical liberals have to challenge that attempted monopolization vociferously and frequently every chance we get. When people pull that nonsense, call it, name it for what it is. Uh, and, and, and I th think you just have to defend liberal institutions. You, you can't get defensive about your own 
don't go into, well, I got all these black friends. Uh, that's not going to work. <laughs> right. Think but I think, I think you have to be vociferous. That's like and, the kind of stuff my grandmother would say. Right. I know. I loved dearly. I know. I, I, grandmothers we all, we all, and grandfathers, right. but we're racist people because it was it's right. the generation right. and they were. Well, right. And I think, I think the other thing. Like the check mark the box, like, oh yeah. no, I have, yeah. you know, yeah. I, that, you know, Marie diversity at, at, right. you know, yeah, yeah <laughs> whatever right. the argument was it was right. like yeah it's like i know but but tokenism right. So, so right but it's important not to be def personally defensive i think it's important to be to defend vociferously western institutions the good ones anyway and and sort of the importance of of of, of dialogue and freedom of, of speech and all that and and to just call out their bad faith and to say, you know, you're 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 now reduced to name calling. You what's the argument? You don't have a case here if all you can do is say I'm a racist because I disagree with you, right? So, and, and does it work? I don't know, but I know it's the right thing to do. So I, you know, your your call I think is a really important one because I think the um, we're at a really d dangerous time is my perception, mm -hmm. and it, I, I hope I'm like excessively worried and it's like a, the the like the early stages of grumpy old man syndrome <laughs> is coming but um the polarization that's happened in the country has left not a lot of room for a middle ground yeah and what we're talking about and what you're advocating for is in a very real sense a, a nuance it's a middle ground it's a detente. It's to say, hey, um, I, you and I, um, in the big sense, we have a bunch of shared interests and we don't, we have a bunch of things that we can argue about, but we can lock arms about abuse of power, about um, corruption, about uh, structures that are rigged against either intentionally or accidentally or historically against yeah. people of color. And I think even more si truly systematically than people of color per se is the poor, yeah. which happens to end up correlating strongly yes. with people yeah. of color. Which is, which is the problem that we want to fix, right? Right. So you have, I think you sometimes have this case where whether it's, um, uh, prosecutorial misconduct or the access to a to a competent defender or uh, or the costs of bail or the, yeah. all these sorts of things that somebody like Riley Balco's like just unpacked and exposed yeah. in many cases the bias here is that they if you're poor they screw you right and um and so that hits people of color disproportionately Maybe, but maybe is not necessarily racist per se. Yeah, it has a kind yeah. of racial inequity as an outcome. Yeah. So I think you're saying like, look, we've got to get, we got to lock arms on these things. Yeah. And I think there's never been a more important time to do that. Um, because if we don't lock arms on it, where do we head? From your perspective, right. I have my thoughts, <sighs> but where do you think we end I, up I, if we can't? Yeah, I don't, I, no, nowhere good. <laughs> um, I, I think the polarization is a huge problem. And I, and I think the loss of ability, and I don't want to put more blame on one side or the other, but the loss of the ability to, to uh, converse in good faith uh, is a real problem. That's the root of this, right? And, and, I'm, and 
you know, I think people on the right would say, well, look what, look what the left has done to us. They, you know, they started the culture war. They rammed their views down our throats, right? People on the, and people on the left are saying, well, how can we have a company? This is my, many of my academic friends from other disciplines. I can't have a conversation with someone who's a racist. I just can't, I can't, you know, platform. I don't like that word, but I, I can't even start, right? Uh, in a meaningful way because you're a racist, right? And, 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 they might or might not be. I'm gonna, just let me tell you a little quick story. So I live in this subdivision of about 36 houses uh, in suburban Indianapolis. And we moved here three years ago. And these people are lovely. These, my neighbors are lovely. They, they have taken care of me and us when I've been sick and they mowed our, yeah. our you know, shovel our snow. And they're just, they're generally, most of them are lovely people. And New York Times had this map a while ago where you could get down very specifically to see sort of the split between Trump and Clinton in various neighborhoods and so on. And so, you know, I thought, uh-oh, do I really want to know this, right? And I looked, it turns <laughs> out, by the way, to sort, it's a little bit larger than my subdivision, but the area I live in is about 50-50. It's pretty purple, hmm. right? But still, right, you know, one of the things is 50% Dogs my, and cats living yeah, together. Right, right. <laughs> but, right. But, but what it means is half of my people, half of these people in the subdivision voted for Trump. And yet, they came and took, probably some of those people helped out and took care of me and made offers and brought us coffee cake when we moved in. What do I do with that, right? I, I, can't, I can't dismiss them as, irrede as irredeemable, right? As, as whatever, right? deplorables, right. right? I can't because they're not. But at the same time, right, how, how do we have that conversation in, in good faith? And, I, and one of the things I've done over the years, my years as an academic, is try to have those good faith conversations with my left-wing colleagues, right? Uh, who I think are wrong about a lot of things, but they're just wrong. They're not evil, they're not bad, they're not trying to, you know, they're not Stalinist, right? Most of them anyway. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, they're just wrong, they're wrong. And this is Hayek's point, right? We never attribute more than intellectual error, okay? And, you know, all right, so let's talk. Let's, let's find those things, as you said, let's find those things we agree on and then have a conversation about what we don't. But the problem is people are fixated on the means. If you don't agree with my means for solving the problem, you therefore don't care about the problem. And I think that's another attitude that we need to challenge uh, so directly. I think there's sort of two layers to this component, right? Because there's a, there's a, there's a contempt problem which is something that uh, Arthur Brooks has put, put a yeah. lot of focus on yep. in recent years. This yep. uh, that contempt, um, you know, he tells the story of a, a um, mar you know, famous marriage counselor who basically says, when you start to see one of the spouses roll their eyes yep. as the other talks, that that's contempt. It's a sen it's, it's, it comes from a kind of place of disgust. Yeah, and, and resentment. Yeah. And resentment and just like, you are horrible, you are hideous. It is, it's this disgust revulsion place and it's a particular place. It's different than disagreement. It's different yeah. than even right. anger. Um, and he makes this point and I think it's great, especially as a hot, fiery Italian, that like anger is actually okay. Like getting, even screaming and yelling at each other, you know, you can have makeup sex, like you can, right, right. but, but when, like when you're rolling your eyes, right. that's like a cold death. Yep. And been there, I think, you know, <laughs> and I think we, so I think we have that happening yeah. in the country and, and it's bowling alone and it's the great, dis yeah. it's the people, the big sort. And there's these things that are happening where people are increasingly just clustering with like-minded people and 
holding yep. contempt for yeah. the other side, yeah. whatever yeah. that other side is. Right. And, and I don't, you know, I think the only ways you get past that is, is you need to, you need to have intentional conversations and, and, you know, even if you seeking them out is great, but even if you don't seek them out, you know, organizations, you know, uh, who, who center for the study of Liberty, for example, uh, who are trying to create these conversations across ideological boundaries and across these different things and sort of realize that the people you are holding in contempt both ways are, are actually have the same concerns you do. Uh, and that what you disagree about is how best to fix them. I also think the other thing for me is many of these disagreements and much of the intellectual error is based on bad history. Uh, and people just not understanding history. I mean, I think uh, not under, you know, uh, not all of all the myths about all the myths about the horrors of capitalism are the obvious one for me, right? Uh, and sort of uh, myths, more, more contemporary myths about economic growth and about war. I mean, Hans Rosling's factfulness is, if you haven't read it, is awesome. Right. There's, a, there's a canon, there's a modern canon that that's, yeah. uh, includes the rational optimist yes, and yes, the better right, angels yes. of our nature and yeah, enlightenment wanna, now yeah. and, 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 uh, and um, factfulness that... Right, and, and Deidre's stuff, right? But I always, I wanted to teach a course, I'd love still to teach a seminar called Cornucopia. Right where we where we read all these books and sort of say you you know I I'm well I'm gonna you know look I, I've talked about this in other places but but I think the opposite of of that contempt and resentment and Jonah Goldberg talks about this in his most recent book the yeah. opposite of resentment is gratitude right uh, and Adam Smith talked about this too right that that how what 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 sort of bothers me the most about both sides right now is a complete lack of gratitude, intellectually informed gratitude for the world that they live in. It, from the left, we want to tear all the institutions down and not realize that, that despite their real and genuine flaws, those institutions have made possible a world that our ancestors couldn't imagine, that your grandparents who have never emigrated right. could not imagine, right? And on the other hand, the, the righties and conservatives are also lack gratitude, right, for the, for the ways in which uh, international and cosmopolitanism has improved their lives and made, you know, right. It, it, or, or that not everything that has survived the process right. is good. Right. Also true. <laughs> not every right. tradition That's right. is right. worth preserving because That's right. history right. is littered with, with terrible That's traditions right. that right. died at late death. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, and that we have, I mean, you know, uh, we have an obligation to work to improve the world, right? I mean, this is, I, you know, I'm reading Rabbi Sachs right now, so I'm thinking a lot about Judaism and the idea of tikkun olam, to repair the world. Often, by the way, tikkun olam is translated by sort of progressive Jews as the equivalent of social justice and all that follows that we've been concerned about in this conversation. But if you actually look up what, it literally means repair the world. And the idea was that there are these holes these missing spaces and it's our obligation, our moral obligation to sew them up, right? And I think that's a much better metaphor for where we find ourselves, right? The fabric is still good, it still works, but there's holes, right? There's holes and we gotta, we gotta, we gotta find those, it's our obligation to find those holes and to, and to fix them up. That, that it's, uh, that's our obligation to repair the world. So there's another element. So, the, so we have to find, and I, I think this is at a personal level, at the individual level, we have to reject contempt yeah. and, and put ourselves in the position to be proven wrong, to have the, you know, it's a kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, like right. find someone that disagrees with you 
and agree to have a, a, a vociferous conversation that never gets personal or nasty. That's right. And it's the most, for me, it's the most exciting, uh, uh, stimulating kind of conversation to have is because you, you will always learn something. You'll learn something about right. them. You'll learn something about your own perspective. And to go with that, two things. One, one is um, I'd rather make the mistake of being too generous to, my, to the people I disagree with than being not generous enough. Uh, not everyone might agree with me on that, but I'm willing to be, I'm willing to be proven wrong that they really are bad people as opposed to assuming that they are. I think along with that rejection of part of contempt is hubris. So the rejection of contempt means humility. And I think that this is a virtue that classical liberals of all people should find easy to adopt because our whole view of the world and how the world works is one of humility. We're not smart enough to design the world the way we might like. We, we, we rely on these transpersonal, these, you know, these intersubjective institutions to guide us because we're not smart enough. Uh, we, we've come to where we are by relying on things that we don't completely understand. This is Hayek's whole sort of worldview uh, is, a, is one of humility. And I think that that, and, and the, the tragedies of the 20th century were tragedies of hubris, of, of a lack of humility. So as we reject contempt, I think we have to adopt a conscious humility. And I think a willingness to, a willingness to learn and a willingness, clearly signal a willingness to be proven wrong. Now look, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right. right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm right about the world. I'm not 100% I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure, okay? But, but that's a different question than the attitude one brings to the kind of conversations that you're talking about, right? Which is, okay, give me your best argument. Pers persuade me, right? Persuade me that I'm wrong. Because if, if you can show me that I'm wrong, I'm going to adopt your preferred thing. And one of the interesting things about Mises, right, is that Mises, even more than Hayek, was a brute systems utilitarian, right? Mises, look, if you could show me that socialism worked better, you know, led to social cooperation and improved lives of poor, I'll become a socialist because what I care about are the outcomes. Right. Turns out, doesn't work that way, right? So, but I, but I think that we, we need to have that same sort of, okay, show me, right? Let's talk. Uh, and, and I think to, inf to insist in those conversations that the other person listen and, and not attempt to claim that monopoly on the moral high ground because that's the thing that really drives me crazy. You can't, if I'm arguing against minimum wage laws, if you're, and then you just turn around and call me a racist, you're not interested. Yeah, it's a good conversation's o yeah. over. So, so here, here's sort of the last, um, not the last, perhaps, because these are long-form conversations <laughs> we have here on the Emergent Order podcast. But uh, um, one of the things I find interesting, and I, I really, I want to both, I want to hear, hear your take and cha may perhaps challenge it, because I think we maybe come down on these things yeah. differently, is... Um, I am generally kind of a fan of Jordan Peterson. Oh boy. <laughs> so here we can, we can practice what we just preached. Right. And, that's right. And, um, you know, and I think, uh, not for the reasons of what like brought him to fame. Cause I don't, yeah. Right. Although, although I think he was on a just crusade there about, I mean, he was protecting essentially what we're talking about in a sense. He was saying, look, free speech and compelled speech and, yeah. And that in general, that this, you know, he uses this label that maybe is a brute force instrument. He calls this, this movement sort of postmodern neo-Marxists is the way he puts it. Yeah. 
but I think other quarters of our friend group would say critical, the critical theory types. Yeah. Um, that they, that what we just were talking about, about rejecting contempt, about trying to have a dialectic yeah. and, 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 and acknowledging that there's a thing called empathy, that it can exist and that we can put ourselves outside our own experience and learn that there's a school of thought that says, uh, uh-uh, no, that's not, that's not stuff that there's only, I'm not quite sure. Cause I'm not studied enough in these thinkers. And so I think I have probably a skewed view of these thinkers, but the popularization of this, these ideas are properly, I think, represented by somebody like Peterson, which is to say, um, it is poison to allow you, the person I hate to speak because free speech, logic itself, science, these are, um, these are sort of patriarchal Western male cis white tools of oppression, tools of oppression and people and, 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 and I, the, 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 the critic, the reason why I take these seriously is because there's a lot of people who are true liberals, whether it's John McHorder or Brett Weinstein, Weinstein or Jonathan Haidt or Steven Pinker or Sam Harris who have never voted for a Republican uh, are cosmopolitan liberals and they sound exactly like Jordan Peterson when they talk about this mindset, that it is a kind of anti-civilization, anti-West, anti-enlightenment mindset. Yeah, I think that's right. So, so that why piece, don't you like Jordan Peterson? That, I, I think that's because to me, that's, the yeah, thing, that's his message. Well, I think there's a, I think the things I don't like in Jordan Peterson are things other than that. Okay. Okay. So I we, think maybe we that, don't even need to get into this. Well, things, but, but, but I would, but yeah. I think there's a couple of things to say. Right? I mean, I think, yeah, I and mean, we probably don't want to go how can you have a, take How us. can you kill contempt you, if people right, say, no, 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 right. you're you not, can't. You sh- yeah. How yeah, you that, can't have a conversation and you can't, you can't have a discussion without those rules, without those, inst- those institutions, without thinking that reason and logic and evidence, right? You, it, you can say that those have been used to bully people to, as, as an instrument of power to bully people. And I think that there's truth to that, right? But that doesn't make them inherently that. It means they can be used that way by people who might wish to for their own nefarious purposes. Uh, but, but, you know, I, I think for people for, I mean, the, the sort of hardcore critical theory people, and again, I think there's a slice that gets a lot of attention that are the extremists and all of these things that don't necessarily represent all, you know, this. So I have, I mean, I, colleagues of mine at St. Lawrence found critical theory to be very interesting and would sort of be sympathetic to Marx and sort of, you know, all the kind of things you think that. Peterson might be talking about or that one would think of. But if you sat down and talked to them, right, they, they were, you know, they were using logic, they were trying to marshal evidence. And, and the, the, my favorite part, right, is that many of them taught writing, right, and, and would get upset when their students' papers were poorly organized. <laughs> and they're like, well, okay, they're just, they're just trying not to be oppressive, right? Well, I mean, no. So, so do they, you know, the part of the problem here is, is there's theory and practice. I mean, this is, you know, my, the same colleagues 
who at St. Lawrence who were all upset when Walmart opened in the next town, 10 miles, right? I go to a party a few weeks later and, 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 and someone's serving food and the other one woman says to, says to her, oh, those are really great storage containers. Where'd you get those? And very sheepishly, she says, well, Walmart, right? Because, <laughs> right. So, so there's, a, there's a theory practice distinction here. And I think a lot of people talk a good game. Not to say, I mean, there really are people in positions of power in, in academia. If you really want to talk about academia, I think the real place that's a problem and, and some of the classical liberals who've been writing like Jason Brennan and Phil Magnus have been writing about this have identified it, I would maybe even be stronger about it than they are, is in student affairs, right? That, that it's, yes. it's oftentimes the student affairs professionals. And I want to be really careful because I worked with them for many years and I love them as people. But they're simply so what, what is student affairs for so those the people of us who are who are a long yeah, time ago who are responsible for the residence halls and orientation and sort of all yeah. the co-curricular extracurricular activities that students engage in that basically that aren't sports um, and they're they're often extraordinarily well-meaning but haven't had to think about two things they're they're just not trained to think about the larger social science issues, but they also have never thought seriously about things like academic freedom and, and why diverse voices are important for learning. I mean, that's just not what they're trained in for a variety of reasons. And so, you know, faculty get upset because we still, more than they do for sure, value those things, right? And, and so, so I think that that's, that's part of the problem. And they're often the worst offenders in terms of seeing these, you know, Western practices and institutions as being tools of oppression. And I think it's, you know, we'll go back where kind of where we started with universities and, 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 and sort of now Jordan Peterson's stuff. I mean, I think it is incumbent upon the Steven Pinkers, the, the, as you say, the sort of liberals, right, uh, to step up and, and, and defend themselves and defend the things that they're doing. I mean, I think, you know, Height's been great and Heterodox Academy is a good development as a place to do this, but, but it's a hard, it's, it's hard when the forces of culture, when the New York Times is, is kicking out Brett Stevens, right? Yes. It's an uphill, so, it's an uphill battle. So like, this is my, um, you know, I brought up Jordan and you rolled your eyes and it was <laughs> well, well, you didn't, I didn't you know didn't where you were going. Towards me. No, no, I, you, didn't but, know where, I didn't but, know where I, you were going. I just, I'm just, it, I just am tired. I, I'm, <laughs> let me, I'll be, I'll, I'll put it this way. I just, I think he's, many people find him interesting. Some people find him useful. I just don't think he's a classical liberal and I don't think he's someone we want to hold up as a role model, the other people you name there, by contrast, are right. So, so I think here so that's the, why I rolled my eyes. I, I, I understand. Here's this is probably this is partly a temperamental thing. I think for for us, perhaps, but I think one of the things about not just Jordan, I put Jordan in the category with height in the sense that I think what he, what his big picture story is, is hyper individual, hyper individualized in the sense, I mean, it's very Misesian in a way, because what he basically is saying all along is, um, he operates at two levels, but, but, he, but his basic is, you have to sort of take care of yourself and don't think you can remake the world before you make your bed. And I, know people, room, yeah. and I, I, there's, I actually think that is quite profound and it's, and it, and it's easily mocked 
but I think it's quite profound and it can, and it is a scold, but it's a useful scold. I, I don't know if I'd call it profound, but that doesn't mean it's not true. No, uh, I, I think it's profound. And here, let me make the argument for why, because I think that actually um, what he's done that I think most classical liberals fail to do is um, he brought the abstraction down into reality. And um, he's actually made manifest this concept that is very hard for, to get your head around. And that's methodological individualism, like the cornerstone of thought of classical liberal thinking to, for me. It's mm -hmm. one that's like methodological individualism. People choose, individual minds choose and decide. Subjective value, peace. Mm-hmm. And you got, it. you kind of got, yeah, it. You got yeah. those. I put exchange in it. Subjective value, exchange, peace. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and so I think that, but I think more broadly, he fits into this group because he's coming th through the psychology door. Yeah. And I think that that's something that's been very interesting to me in recent times, because I think that I'm a systems oriented person. And so I snap into rules of the game and institutions and, and um, principles and ethics and the categorical imperative and these sorts of things that like, oh, the categorical imperative, it's like the golden rule. Like if a rule can't be applied everywhere, it shouldn't be applied. It's like, you know, there's a type and I'm in that category that that stuff works. Yeah. But, but then you have this other issue of, yeah, but what's in it for me? How do I figure out how to get around in the world? And that's where he exists. But then I think it's, that's one level in which I think he's really valued. I think we have a lot, we, we the cerebral classical liberals need to take what works of him more seriously. Well, and in I, a deeper way than I think, because yeah. there's, there's plenty of people who are kind of like, uh, I'm just going to be mean and call them kind of knuckle dragging right wingers who gravitate yeah. towards him poking people. Right. And I, I don't have any interest in that. Right. That's not interesting to me. Right. Um, but I think that there's there's this other critique. This like you've said, okay, well, it's these people that run like the you know the dorms. Yeah. I think it's a lot broader than that. I, I mean, I think it's I think I, it's I don't a think mentality it's that. that has echoed. You know, uh, one of my most prime, one of the things I've um. Hayek's paper, the Intellectuals and in Socialism, mm -hmm. has had a, has like, is like, always in play for me. Yep. As a, cause I consider myself to be kind of a secondhand dealer in information, yep. which is this, this concept of you've got the intellectual class and the academics and they have these sort of blackboard ideas and then they make their way out until you have a hashtag or a meme or a rap video. Yep. And I think there's something, it disturbs me a lot that this cancel culture Twitter, like dumpster fire. There's no, there's no slander against Twitter that I won't agree with. <laughs> and well, I don't really that we agree on. very much. No, it is I, really, I, I, it's all dopamine, no serotonin. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, right. It is, no. Uh, no, I use no, it, but sparingly. It's, um, so, you know, do you not take it? It seems like you don't take that quite as, you, you're not as worried about that as I am clearly. Like, why aren't you more worried about that? Or, I, am I, or do you think I'm overreacting? Well, so here's me sort of trying to live up to my own principles of conversation, which is it may be 
the particulars of my experience in academia may lead me to look at this through rosier glasses than is justified. I, I have a tendency, I'm a, as you know, right? I'm a hardcore sort of optimist. Yeah, right? you're a cornucopian. I mean, yeah. I'm a, right, I, 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 it's, it's hard to get me to, to be, you know, even in the face of my own medical stuff right now, right? I still am convinced somehow that I'm gonna live to 90, whatever, but, um, and I might. Right, I can't. I, I can't operate. Steve. I can't operate any other way. Anyway, so so you know, I'm 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 incorrigible that way, uh, and so maybe that's a flaw of mine. I mean, I, you know, uh, that that I that I'm I'm and that I'm basing this on my own experience in a way, and it causes me to underplay how bad it is, more generally out there. I am convinced that 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 this is a problem of elite institutions in general. That doesn't necessarily mean it's less of a problem, right? Because they're elite institutions. Uh, but I think, you know, at least in academia, the sort of rank and file academic is too busy teaching class and trying to write a couple papers and sitting on committees to be too concerned with this stuff. But at, but at the top, right? At the top, it's a real problem. And now I think the big, what was what it? Andrew Sullivan said, we're, we're all we're all academic academia now, right? We're all, we're all on college campuses. Right? And, right. and that I think to me is the thing that concerns me when, you know, to, to use the, when the virus was quarantined to college campuses. <laughs> okay. Right. You know, that's one problem and that's an avoidable institution or whatever, but, but it's clearly now, I mean, six, the 1619 is a good example of ways in which it's, it's spread and the Brett Stevens thing and all the other things we've seen in the last couple months. Uh, I mean, I just saw yeah. Matt Tiebe's written a piece about out of deep concern for the, yeah. I mean, he's, and yeah. he's very, a very, I, he's one of the most interesting progressive thinkers right. I no, know man, and, right. and, and I know of, and he's look, he's is, saying we're, we're journalism as a concept yeah, is under right. threat because right. of this mentality. Because and this, of this is an age, an age thing too, right? I mean, there's a dividing line somewhere in there. Maybe it's 30. I don't know what the age is, but if you're under it, you're you're in on cancel culture. I mean, my, it's interesting to watch my daughter. Uh, she she told me you're going to figure out a way to work. Work. She said you're going to figure out a way to work me into that conversation. So here you go, Rachel, uh, <laughs> who is in New York City uh, and an actress and in the Broadway world and in that and sort of has seen one play. She was working as she was directing or producing, directing. I guess the stuff came out about the guy who wrote it or was producing it, that he had a history of questionable gender behavior and the actors all walked out and the thing literally got canceled. I mean, so she's lived this and, and she's more skeptical about it. And maybe because she's my daughter, right? I mean, she's not a big one to sort of want right. to cancel everybody, but to say, come on, you gotta, you gotta be reasonable here, right? There's, there's sins and there's sins. Uh, and I think that that's so, so there's some of that, but, but you can see between her with her and her friends sort of, these mid 20 somethings that this is the thing. And, and, and I do worry about it. And, you know, part of me wants to say, maybe when, when, when you all are older and have the stuff of adulthood, if you have the stuff of adulthood that you'll see these things differently, it's easy when you're, you know, sort of single or married, no kids. And then, you know, I don't know. I, I just don't know. I, I worry about this, but I, I want to come back to another point though. I think uh, two things, actually one quick one. I, you know, before there was Hayek Games rap videos, uh, 
I always thought one of the most important things classical liberals had to do was to do what you said, was to take the abstract and make it concrete artistically. That, that you know, you don't want to be dogmatic about it, right? You, you, you want to, I mean, that's what's, yeah. you know, so great about the videos and why, and probably why I was skeptical because I was ex thinking in terms of sort of some more dogmatic presentation, right? But how you, so we don't want, what we don't want is libertarian art. That's not what we want. I mean, channeling my wife here who's, who would be nodding were she in the room. <laughs> what we want is, is really good art that has themes and messages that are, you know, that, that, that get across to people the importance of, of, those ideas or liberal institutions or so on, right? I mean, you can have the endless debate about where Ayn Rand fits into that, which of those categories. Yeah. I think she's an interesting case study yeah. in, yeah. in, in but, trials but and tribulations right. on that. But, but you can't deny the influence, right? I mean, I, you know, I might not be here were it not for so, so I think that's really important. I also think, and this goes back to Jordan Peterson, I also think, and, and Jonathan Haidt, the interest in psychology that we're seeing is really important too, sort of, we, you're right that we probably haven't focused enough on the way in which individual behavior can help promote and sustain and channel liberal values. And so I've written on parenting yep. from that same place, right? Which is how we parent might matter a great deal for whether our kids adopt those liberal values or reject them. Right. I'm working and, on a film right now, uh, uh, exactly focused on this precise issue. Yeah. So, so I, right, and and I and I think that that all of we we've underplayed these things, and and so this actually ties into some of the broader history we were talking about earlier too. I think the problem historically has been for classical liberals, it's been the market versus the state, right? There, there it is. Right. Two abstractions. Two abstractions, and as if that were it. Right. When in fact, there's this whole realm of civil society and all these other institutions and all these other things that matter to human beings, religion being another. Right. That we haven't really talked about in ways that 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 uh, matter to people. Right. So, you know, I, I'm 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 reading Rabbi Sachs, but I have a ongoing fascination with how to talk about classical liberalism being consistent with Jewish values, right? And, and you know, why, why, should, why should serious Jews be more sympathetic to classical liberals? That's it, to me, I think there's an answer to that question and I want to explore it. And so all of these things, right, are ways- Have I you been talking to Russ lately? Cause you know- no, Yeah, no, I'm, you really every gotta, time- You gotta pick up the phone and talk to Russ. Right, every, time I, every time I see Russ, this is the conversation, we have a version of this conversation. I just have, I haven't seen him for a while. Um, and, and by the way, I still have never been on his show, which, which I, I don't have, I mean, John, I don't have too many bucket list items. Right. But, but one of these days, one, come on, Russ, one of these days. Right. So, uh, but that's a, that's a, that's a bucket list. Item. Anyway. Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, all these things, I think that these areas that we haven't talked about one, the market versus the state thing is mostly decided not completely, but mostly decided. And it certainly got decided with the fall of the wall and those sorts of things, right? And that sort of breaking apart of the right coalition, I thought would happen and did happen, just not the way I expected. Uh, so now has opened up classical liberals to talk about these other kinds of things because that's, the, that's where the interesting questions are. I think some of the stuff, for example, that Mercatus has done and the interest in the Ostrom's work 
reflects this idea that, hey, you know what? Communities matter too. And how communities solve problems in ways that don't neatly fit into market or state. Yeah, let's talk about that. Well, I think... Um... Uh, one, more, one more quick point yeah, here please. too. I think the other problem, and this is a sort of more little inside baseball thing among classical liberals and libertarians, you know, is that the, the more anarchist leading libertarians get petrified every time you talk about these social problems like race and gender and so on, or talk about, you know, how do we talk to the left? Because they think, right, some of them, many of them think if you're going to talk about the gender wage gap, you must want a state driven solution, or you're going to talk about environmental issues, you must want a state driven solution. No, we, we can talk about those things and talk about market solutions or talk about community solutions or talk about cultural solutions. The most, the best thing we could do to lower, to, to reduce the gender wage gap is to have men taking on more responsibility at home, right? That's a cultural problem. State's not going to solve that problem. And it's not a market problem. It's a cultural problem. So let's talk about that. And I think that's a, an unwillingness to engage those conversations. It's, Students for Liberty and the sort of the younger generation libertarians are much more willing to engage this than my generation was. But I think that's, an, but that is a problem that, that folks just don't want to talk about those issues. Well, for I fear, for fear that it leads, it, you know, it leads to statism. It's an entryway drug to, to statism. <laughs> well, it, it, it is funny because it's like there is, um, especially in that academic land, right? Because you've got the sort of blackboard economics mo model. Yeah. So, so I have identified something that is imperfect, therefore right. government. Therefore, right. Yeah, the, yeah. I call the, that the, 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 this does not therefore that. Right. Ipso, it's the ipso facto leap, I like to call you it. Know, right? so, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But to, to sort of bring our conversation to a close and come back to social justice, I think how, how should we, from your perspective, taking into account this maybe more impactful critical theory and its um, popularizers mindset, this identity politics, this, um, you know, we all have our own truth. It's like, I have my truth, you have your truth. We can't really compare our truths because it's only particular to me, but I but I, but, but, you know, if I have different, if I have different skin color, then, then we've got the same truth or something. I, like the identity politics thing, I think is something we have to grapple with if we want a liberalism that can survive our times. Yeah, I think that's right. So, so how, take it home for me from your, yeah. like grapple with, how do we get to a place where we have a liberalism, classical or otherwise, that is trying to work with these work on these problems and 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 move past identity yeah even so, while grappling with the fact that we do have disparities and and yeah, people that's are, right birds of a feather do tend to flock together and like you go to india and they call darker skinned indians of lower class black people this is yeah. deep stuff we're grappling yes, with it, right so I think the first thing we do is we, we, we recognize that that's a problem and we talk about it and we don't deny it. And we say there are just racial, gender, whatever disparities. Uh, and, and, and to say that, that at least, you know, not necessarily all of them, but some, many of them are a problem, right? I mean, you know, if the, most of the gender wage gap might be explained by things we don't think are problematic, right? Maybe personal preferences. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. So, yeah. you know, but at least we have to, we have to 
admit, it's not even a matter of admitting, it's just true that those problems are there. And it, I think it's just true that, 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 you know, we can, we can talk about the, 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 the problems that create the problems. So I think we, that sense, we, we have to not deny that, that the problems exist. I think we have to always put, this is the bleeding heart libertarian thing, right? We always have to put forward our concern with the least well off, whether that's material, whether that's, whether that's racially, whether it's whatever, right? That, that, that we are siding with the, those who are oppressed and where we haven't used it all this two hours, we haven't used this word and that we object and we reject privilege. The original yes. classical liberals were opponents of privilege, monopoly privilege, all of these forms of this sort. And, and, and we can say, right, we can, two things, state granted privilege is the problem we're usually concerned about, but we can admit I, I, white privilege is a real thing, right? The, as you said, I'm going to get treated differently by the justice system if I'm caught with drugs than, than my African-American friend is. And I, I, you know, I've seen it being out with friends of color, right? You just see people treat you. I mean, it's real. Okay. So, but, but, and we can yep. be opponents of privilege and always put that forward too. Uh, I, so, and I think we have to have concrete solutions, proposed solutions to those problems. So, you know, when Justin Amish puts this qualified immunity and the rest of that bill together, I mean, yes, right. Do, that's what we need. And, 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 you know, give him full props here for getting Democratic co-sponsors and even one Republican co-sponsor. It might not go anywhere, but that's what we need to do. We need to, so we, you know, we need to show our good faith if we want people to treat us with good faith. And it might suck that the burden's on us to take the first step, but I think it is on us, because, frankly, because our reputation for not caring about those issues isn't wrong, right? <laughs> it's just not wrong, or at least not putting them front and center isn't wrong. And so I think the burden is on us to say, look, we really do care. We have cared. Our it's deep in our tradition, this objection to privilege, this analytical egalitarianism, all these sorts of things, right? And, 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 you know, we mean it and we're trying our best. So, so give us that and we'll give it, you know, we'll, we believe you guys mean well, you know, even if we disagree about what the best way to get there is. So grant us that as well. So I think that's what we have to do. And I think, I think last point, maybe none of this means we have to accept the entire agenda of the social justice crowd. Uh, so two points, one, the really serious crazy theory folks who you can't even have a conversation with, then you can't have a conversation with them. But there's right. plenty of folks that everyone out protesting is not a critical theorist, right? So right. there's yes, plenty of people sure. out, right, there's plenty of people out protesting who are in fact liberals in the broadest sense of the term, or progressives in the broadest sense of the term, who we can have conversations with if, if we do it right. And watching our rhetoric uh, and, 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 and so like, you know, if, if what we leave, oh yeah, we hate Trump, or, or, well, let me put it the other way. So libertarians say, well, Trump's not all bad because he deregulated a bit and changed the tax code, right? Meanwhile, he's crumbling Western institutions, right? Political <laughs> institutions. Right? Get a sense of priority here, folks, right? Right, right, so, right. So dealing, let's, let's also say to our yeah. friends on the left in particular, we agree with you about what the important issues are. We're not, we're not just about reducing the tax rate. We're not libertarians. We're not just, we want to conservatives who want to smoke dope. We care about those things and we want to, we want to get them right. I think um, you make a really important point there at the end, which is, uh, and people like Bernie, I mean, Bernie Sanders is the most popular uh, um, mm -hmm. person to make 
this exact kind of hideous argument, which, uh, which is to say, well, sure, Castro did some bad things, but you know, what about the literacy rate? It's like, okay, <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm, there, there's a lot of people, a lot of Cubans who died in the Caribbean who might disagree with you. Right, but, so that, that there, there's a sort of wacky proportionality problem in the cherry picking. Yeah. And I do think when it comes to um, the president that, um, be, mostly because presidents don't matter as much as we think they do because of the structure of the yeah. government, um, the rhetoric, the willingness to, uh, you know, the, the, the bully pulpit has been abused in ways that are truly heinous, but it's even worse than that. And so like, I, yeah, when you say like, oh, well, he's kind of shredded the institutions of, the, of, yeah. of, of Western sort of governance. Right. But the tax rate. Right, no, you sound like, like an idiot, that right? is That is Bernie Sanders' apologetics right, for, co right. for communist whack right. jobs and Sandistas right. and all the that's rest a, of the people yeah, that he a, finds a, a reason point. to apologize for. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a, the same yeah. thing. It's yeah, the same. No, that's a great point. And yeah. I think like, I think it's, an, I think it's a super important project to yeah. say there's a sensible sort of middle and that there's a 15% over here and a 15% over here who we can't have a good conversation with. Right, we can't, right. And, and, and it's okay and yeah. to say, no, let's talk to the people who are open to the to meaningful conversation. And I, um, you know, the, I, I'm, I'm often guilty of, I, I, I'm fiery, so I can often yeah, be guilty no, of that. And, um, and yet I think like the thing I, I try to strive for, especially in the work, is um is what is manifest in these rap videos so what, 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 a, a video editor that's worked up with us on a number of projects is very much a, a very staunchly like liberal democrat um you know and he adores the mises versus marx video he just adores it you know that's and he's and he's like and he just loves and i know a little Relative to the other two, the comments section of the Mises Marx is slightly different. Yeah. Because even though I feel like we tweet, treated Marx pretty fairly, it's almost impossible to take on Marx and get oh, people right. who like Marx to take your treatment of him. Oh, that's not the real Marx. It's, it's yeah. so much worse than that's not the real Keynes. Keynes. Yeah, no, it is. And, 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 and that was, you know, when I watched that video the first time, I thought, I thought okay, you're, there, this, is, this is a, I think it's the right one, but it, this is a reading of Marx and one people think they say, no, that's not really what Marx said. But you know, it's I, funny. Yeah. I, one of my flaws is that like you, I am fiery though, perhaps in a different way. And, and I don't always live up to my own principles as well as I, I wish I did. None um, of us do. No, none of us do. And some of my, my wife stops me from doing stupid things on Facebook, <laughs> but I think if I ever you know needed to make some money, I'd offer a subscription to my Facebook friends and followers and say, you can subscribe to the Horwitz things I didn't post on Facebook. <laughs> 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 right. And see what, you know, that's because uh, there's, I, I, I write, write them and then delete them sometimes. It's like, yeah, no, well, you really don't want to do that, Steve. It, um, what's, what's next for you, Steve? So uh, good question. Uh, the big sort of news next month is I have this, uh, Austrian economics and introduction 
monograph. It's a short book coming out through, through libertarianism.org, through Cato's uh, libertarianism guides thing. And uh, some folks snuck in and got it early and seemed to like it. So that has multimedia content. I recorded a number of several video and audio lectures and that'll go up. Uh, interestingly, it was three years ago now is before I got sick. So that'll be interesting to watch from my end. Uh, and uh, so that's, that's the most, that's an exciting thing. Uh, I have another really big, exciting thing that will become public in early September that I can't talk about, but I'll, oh. vague, I'll vague book it uh, now. Uh, everyone will be very happy for me. Let's put it that way. Uh, uh, but other than that, you know, I got a few other small projects. The big thing for me is we just got big grants for this new institute at Ball State. And so I'm working on making that happen. And, uh, and frankly, happy that I'm really healthy right now and trying to work hard to make it stay that way. Uh, that's, you know, that, that hovers over everything else. Yeah. Well, on that note, I, I really, I love you, Steve. You're, you're one of my favorite people. Um, and you know, keep, keep fighting the good fight against those you've got, you've got an invisible enemy that you got to worry about at all times right now. So yeah, not so it's interesting. You know, one of the the good days are the days I forget. Right. And, and, uh, there's more of those right now because I just not there's nothing happening to me. There's no little warning light right on my panel that that says, <laughs> "Hey, remember you." You know, so other than you know, I, mean, I can't go chasing the dog like I used to. But that's I'm also 56, so you know, <laughs> well, you've healthy. you've managed to hang tough on a two-hour yeah. conversation that spanned a lot of big ideas. Yeah. And uh, my pleasure. Uh, uh, here's to many more to come. I hope so. That's my plan. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. All right, Steve. We'll have a good one. Thanks for participating in the conversation. Take care, John. Keep fighting the good fight. Thank you, sir. Always my pleasure to hang with you. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Emergent Order podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. If you're interested in being a guest, shoot us an email at podcast at emergentorder.com. Our producer is Jesse Bennett. Thanks again and speak to you next time.